Today's reading will come from Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27. If you would like to follow along in your pew Bible, it's page 1117. This is the word of the Lord. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell the parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not take my money and put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to every I tell you that to everyone who has more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for those enemies of mine who did not want to, me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. This is the word of the Lord. Challenge to keep your copy of God's word open as we continue in our series, Money Matters. Today we deal with the principle of accountability, the principle of accountability as seen here in Luke chapter 19 in this parable of these servants and this king. I don't know about you, but I grew up in a home where I was taught accountability with money in particular ways. To give you a few examples of that in the home that I grew up in, and I'm sure that you could give some stories about how you were or were not taught how to deal with money rightly. Uh, when I was growing up, I uh, had friends that we were getting to about that time where it was time to get vehicles and started to drive. And my dad would tell everyone he knew, including me, uh, something like this. I would never deprive you, son, of the joy of buying your first vehicle. Uh, I didn't know if that was just a way for him to get out of buying me a vehicle or he really meant it that he thought that I was going to get something out of that. And certainly, uh, just to reflect for a moment in my own life, I did buy my first vehicle. It was a 1964 Chevrolet truck. I gave $690 for it. I redid the bed, which was wood in that truck. And eventually, I paid about $300 to get a 350 motor to drop into it. And I uh, loved that truck for as long as I drove it. And I did pay for every 
bit of it. When I was in middle school, my parents uh, got me a checking account, and uh, that is how I learned to budget my money, to see it in a place, to budget it and spend it. It's where I learned how to write checks and to balance a checkbook. When I was in the 11th grade, I probably learned one of the hardest lessons of accountability that I have ever learned. And praise the Lord, I tell people all the time, I'm glad it was the 11th grade and not when I was 28 or 30. Uh, our family got uh, uh, solicitations for credit cards all of the time. We got one in the mail one day, 17 years old, by the way, and we got one in the mail that was addressed to Stephen Wade. And I asked my mom, I said, hey, can I fill it out? She said, well, just don't lie on it. Tell them everything. If it's addressed to you, see what they do. Well, would you believe that at 17, some company gave me a credit card? And uh, my dad was amazed that they would do such, and they did. And uh, so I had this credit card, and he told me about it and told me how to take care of it. Well, in the 11th grade, I went on a school trip up to Toronto, Canada. And I thought, man, I've got this credit card, and uh, we'll have some fun in Toronto, Canada as a 17-year-old boy. I came home and had about $285 of debt on that card. That, mind you, in addition to the money that I took just for the trip, the cash that I had on hand. And so I had a debt. Just out of curiosity, I searched today online, and uh, that $285 in 1991 is about $500 in 2016. Kind of show you where the debt was in our day and in our dollars. My dad had some very good words to say to me there, and I won't share all of them with you, but uh, the pertinent ones that he shared were, uh, I would not take the opportunity away from you to pay off your first debt. And so I had uh, interest and I had payments until that $285 was paid off. I'm grateful today that it was $285 and not $28,500 and uh, even more. I learned accountability. I learned from that experience that there really is a bank behind that card that really did pay for this stuff that I bought with that card. And I really did sign something that told them I would be responsible to pay what credit I used of theirs. And so I had to do so. Our text today teaches us much about the principle of accountability, the principle of accountability seen in this parable that Jesus tells us. Because we've not been in the Gospel of Matthew, let me set the con- or excuse me, the Gospel of Luke. Let me set the context for you here in Luke 19, just for a moment, where David ended reading. If you go to verse 28, Jesus is getting ready to go into Jerusalem. And Luke will tell us about the triumphal entry. So Jesus is near the end of his ministry. His death is imminent. It is coming in just a few chapters, in just a few days chronologically from where we are. But if you'll back up to the beginning of chapter 19, we tell a story, or Luke tells us a story here that would be familiar to many of you. And it's the story of a very wealthy man named Zacchaeus. 
Many of you could tell that story here. Zacchaeus was a very wealthy tax collector. The way that the tax collectors gained their living in the day was they collected taxes for Rome uh, of those that they were put in charge over, but they had to collect more than just what Rome required. They were responsible to pay Rome for the people that were under their jurisdiction, and so they would charge just a little more so that they could make a living doing it. Some of them would do even more than just a little more, and they became very wealthy. Zacchaeus is one of those. Jesus came. Zacchaeus met Jesus, changed his life. If you read the story, Zacchaeus paid back everything that he had stolen from others, that he had taken from them fourfold. And he then gave half of all that he had left, half half of his goods, he gave them to the poor. Why? Because he noticed and he know he 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 learned, excuse me, that what he had in this earth is nowhere near what he had in knowing Jesus. The knowledge of the Son of God, the King who will be King forever, is worth trading everything that we have monetarily in this world. And so Jesus says in verse 9 of Luke chapter 19, today salvation has come to this house. Why? Because Zacchaeus, you've realized that there's nothing worth exchanging for your soul. There's nothing that you can own. There's no amount of money that you could have that's worth exchanging that for your soul. And so Zacchaeus said, I'll give all of that away just to know Jesus. And so verse 10, Jesus says, salvation has come to this house for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Now look at verse 11, where we picked up as they heard these things, as they heard Jesus speaking about salvation and the testimony of one Zacchaeus and how he had turned from his old life and given his money for the cause of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, Jesus tells a parable for two reasons. They had heard about salvation. They had heard about the dangers of money, but they had also heard that Jesus was the king promised from the Old Testament and that he was setting up a kingdom. Jesus had come proclaiming the kingdom of God and the people believed he was on his way to Jerusalem. Verse 28, the people believed that he was going to set up his kingdom then. So verse 11 says, because he was near Jerusalem, he told this parable because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Now church, it's good for us to think about why Jesus is telling the parable because that will help us to understand how it applies to us. There were people here that saw the proclamation of the kingdom of God, but they're on the other side of the cross and the resurrection from us. They thought Jesus was going to Jerusalem to set up a kingdom. You and I have learned about, listened to the gospel writers, met the one who died for us, rose again, and has ascended unto the Father. So you know that Jesus was not going to Jerusalem at that point to set up his kingdom. Luke is writing this gospel. He's telling us, recounting this parable to folks just like us. Jesus was saying to his followers, the kingdom is not going to be set up immediately. It is going to be in the future. Friends, the kingdom of God is already, but not yet, even for us. This parable is written for those that live between the ascension and the return of the king. And this parable is about a nobleman who goes into a far country to receive a kingdom and he will come back as a king. 
Sound familiar? You and I are living in a day where there is a a Savior who has come and proclaimed the kingdom and invited us into it and made the way for us to come into the kingdom and He has gone away into the far country and He will return. And this parable teaches about the accountability that you and I have when our King returns. And so we read this parable not as a story about way back then, about those who would need help understanding the kingdom of God, but about today and those who need help understanding the kingdom of God. It teaches us about accountability, how to be faithful servants. As I was thinking about this, I would say to all of us today, this parable would answer the question for us, how can we be faithful servants between the ascension and the return of the king. Our ears ought to perk up when that happens because that is who we are. We have been bought with a price. The Lord Jesus Christ has purchased us with his own blood, church. And now we are those that are living in that interim period that we are seeking out how can we be faithful and wait or how can we be faithful as we wait on the return of of the king. Now, before we jump into the text, let me just say this parable assumes the principle of ownership and the principle of responsibility. If you've not been with us the last two weeks, we have said there are four principles we're going to share about stewardship. First, the principle of ownership that is, both the people and our money belong to God. As the creator, he owns the copyright on all that is because he created all that is. It belongs to him. Not only the principle of ownership, but the principle of responsibility. That is, that all we have and all we earn ultimately belongs to the Lord. And so it's not our right to spend it the way we want to. It is our responsibility to spend it in a way that is pleasing to the Savior. And so if you assume the the uh, principle of ownership, the principle of responsibility, then this text naturally helps us to understand the principle of accountability, how to be faithful servants with the resources that the king has left with us. And so I want to share with you a few of those characteristics out of this text this morning. Characteristic number one, how can we be faithful servants? Faithful servants, number one, expect the return of the king. Faithful servants expect the return of the king. Look down at verse 15, just three words. When he returned. You see, the king goes away and leaves resources with his servants. There are some that do not want him to reign. And you can imagine in Jesus' day as well as in our day, there are people that neither want Jesus to return nor do they expect him to return. But the king is coming back. And if you and I want to understand the word of God, then we know that he will return. And if he is going to return, then we better know about the principle of accountability, that we will be held accountable. As a child, I got in trouble more than I would want to tell you in this little time that we have together. Let's just say I was in trouble my fair share. I was in trouble enough to know that I didn't want my dad to know when I'd messed up during the day when I was home with my mom. There were some times that I got in trouble that my mom just handled the trouble that I was in. I'll try not to make this very long, but my father, when I was very little, my sister's two and a half years older than I am, and they needed a way to punish us, and they believed in, and I believe in, corporal punishment. Mom told dad, 
uh, at some point. I don't feel comfortable spanking them with a belt. I just don't know how to use that. Would you make a paddle? My, fa- my grandfather's a woodworker, so my dad goes up to the wood shop and he makes a paddle. He comes back with a piece of uh, one by four oak cut out as a paddle. My mom says, you'll kill him with that. And so he goes back and he does the worst thing that I think he could ever do. He takes a piece of quarter inch plywood, excuse me, three eighths inch plywood and cuts out a paddle. If you don't think plywood stings, I I have news for you. He cut out a paddle and our names and dates were listed on it when we were in trouble until there was no more room for names and dates listed on the paddle for when we were in trouble. But you know, some of you would know, you've experienced my experience as a child. It was much better for us to get in trouble for mom to go ahead and handle the trouble instead of waiting till dad got home. His hand was a little heavier than mom's was. And so there were times where we were in trouble many times, as a matter of fact, where we got in trouble and either mom thought it warranted telling dad or mom didn't want to deal with it yet and wanted to ask dad about it. And mom would say these words. They were the six most dreaded words of my childhood. Wait till your daddy gets home. I didn't want to hear those words. I knew very early that when daddy got home, I wanted to tell him immediately. As soon as he was walking in the door, I'm thinking in my mind, why aren't you telling him? Why aren't you telling him? Let's get this over with. Go ahead and tell him. He doesn't need you to say hey to him. Just tell him. Just tell him. Let's get it done. And mom would not tell him. She would say, hey, honey, how was your day? Maybe she didn't want to. He's a good wife. Just throw all of that on him. I'm not sure why she didn't tell him immediately, but I figured out pretty quickly that not telling him immediately sometimes was a really, really good thing because she just went on and forgot it. And we knew that if we made it till after supper, and we all sat in the room, and mom had not told dad yet, it was most likely that she was not going to tell him. We didn't care whether she was being gracious or whether she just forgot it. Either way, she wasn't telling him, and we got by with something. I want to tell you, friends, there is no chance that when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back, he is not going to know. And so it's almost as if Jesus is telling a parable here to say, wait till your daddy gets home. There will be a day of reckoning because when my mom did tell him, oh, it was a day of reckoning. I'll not recount some of what I went through as a child. Now, mind you, my parents loved me and they loved me enough to discipline me. And they did so. And there was an accountability that happened. And here Jesus says, there's not a chance that daddy's not going to know. The king, when he comes back, knows all. And there will be an accountability for all of us Verse 15, when he returned. My friends, the king is coming back. And you need to know this morning, you will be held accountable when the king returns. Now I also want you to note in this passage very quickly and in passing, there was a delegation that didn't want the nobleman to be king and sent that delegation after him to try to undermine his rule. And while I think in this room this morning, if we think about the principle of accountability, I don't know any one of you that would stand and say, I don't want Jesus to be the king. I want to undermine his rule. I want to say that he can't come back. He can't come back and rule. We need some other rule. I don't think anybody would stand and say that. But the reality is that we undermine the rule of Christ and his return with the way that we use our monies very often. That's either amen or oh me. For many of us. You see we use our money. 
as if it just belongs to us. Let me ask you this morning a very practical question. Have you really understood the principle of ownership in your life? And you might say, oh, I know it all belongs to the Lord. Well, how about the way you practically spend your money? You see, there's a possibility in here that you're using your money for evil means. But I think there's a greater possibility that you're using your money for means that you don't believe would be evil if you told them to us. But because of your motives, because of your lack of uh, um, uh, acknowledgement that it belongs to the Lord and you want to spend it for His glory, if you're spending your money for your glory, it doesn't have to be outwardly evil and wicked to be evil and wicked in the way that we're using our monies and we're undermining the reign of Christ. In other words, let me say it this way. If you neglect to use your monies in a way that glorifies God, you are undermining the rule of Christ. And you're part of these servants here that are going to be reaping death and eternal death because they're not using their resources. And we're talking about money this morning, but let me say this applies to your time, your talents, and your treasure. Are you using them for the glory of the king? Note here in this passage, we're only told about three of the ten servants who were given money. Three of them expected his return. The others perhaps were part of the delegation. The text doesn't tell us. So folks, I want to tell you this morning, the king has only gone away until the kingdom is ready. He told us in John chapter 14 that he's going away to prepare a place for us and that when he has prepared that place, he would come and receive us unto himself. Church, this should be good news for us. It should be celebration for us that we're waiting on the king this morning. But the reality is a lot of us separate our church spiritual life from our real life Monday through Saturday, and we're not living like the king is coming back in our lives. You want to know if you're living the way the king's coming back? If your accounting of your spending this week, this month, this year were put before you, would you be able to say, oh yes, this is the way that I spend my money and it glorifies Jesus? I'm not telling you you have to use your whole money for church. I'm not trying to get you to give more for the church, although it wouldn't hurt a lot of you. Not trying to get you to give instead of 8% to give 9% and think, well, I'm good now. I'm trying to get us this morning to see that every part of your life from the first penny you ever spend in a week to the last penny you spend in a week to what you put in the plate here to what you spend at Burger King or McDonald's when you live is money that belongs to Jesus and we as the church don't need to see stewardship as well the pastor's talking to us about what we give to the church no the pastor's talking about how we live as a church what are we doing with our monies throughout the week how are we leveraging it for the king faithful servants expect the return of the king and he is coming so folks we have two choices this morning you can use your resources the resources that the king has given you, by the way, for selfish purposes, as if the king is not coming, or you can live expecting his return. Expecting his return. This leads us to the second characteristic of faithful servants, and it's found here in this text in verse 13. Faithful servants, secondly, obey the instructions of the king. They not only expect the return of the king, they obey the instructions. Look at verse 13. He called 10 of his servants. He gave them 10 minas and said to them, here's his instruction, engage in business 
until I come. Now here in this parable, we have a nobleman who has very big interest in his uh, estate earning, gaining money. So he says, engage in business until I come. My question for us this morning as a church, I believe would be the question that Jesus would want us to consider in Luke chapter 19, and that is, what is our business? You see, the instruction of the nobleman is meant for us to understand the instruction of the king that's returning. And it's clear in this text that Jesus is the king and he's coming back. So the instruction is engage in business. And my question to us is, if we want to be faithful servants who obey the instructions of the king, what is our business? Just a couple of weeks ago, we ended our series in Matthew. Matthew's gospel in chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, the Lord Jesus Christ says this to us after his resurrection from the dead. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Friends, it's pretty clear what our business is. The Lord has given us what we would call there in Matthew 28, the great commission. You want to know what your business is as a follower of Christ? It's to make disciples. And so the question is, are we being faithful servants with our monies to make disciples? To make disciples. This is obedience. Friends, let me be clear about this text this morning. The parable is not talking about those who are outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are those in this parable that we will be introduced to in verse 27 that don't know the Lord. But we have been given resources because the king has given them to us and made a way for us to be in his kingdom. You don't just get in his kingdom by being good or spending good or being wise with money. He, the king, makes the way for you to be in his kingdom. And once we're in his kingdom, we are his people. This is the gospel. Jesus came and paid it all so that you could be a part of his kingdom. And now he gives you resources and says, I want you to do my business. Just as Jesus Jesus in the temple when he was 12 years old said, don't you know that I need to be about my father's business? You and I ought to be spending our money and people asking us, why are you spending your money on that? Why don't you do what the world does? Why are you spending your time there? Why are you going to church? Why are you doing this service? Why are you reaching those folks in Turkey? Why do you care about those folks in Africa? Because we've got to be about our father's business. And the question this morning, church, is not What does it mean to be a faithful servant? The text clearly says that. To be a faithful servant, we obey the king's instructions. The question is, are we faithful servants? When the king comes, in verse 16, the first servant comes to him and he says, Lord, here's the money you gave me and it's made ten more. Notice, look at verse 16 with me, what he says. Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. Notice he knows the principle of ownership. It's your mina, and here are ten more. They belong to you. He has been faithful to engage in business, and the king, the master, now sees the increase. The second servant, down in verse 18, he says, Likewise, your mina has made five minas. He, too, has seen an increase when he uses what the king has given him. The third one is not so As the first two, verse 20, then one came and said, Lord, here is your mina. You gave me one, here it is back. I kept it laid away 
and a handkerchief. Now I want you to note here, this man didn't squander it. He didn't lose it. He didn't give it away. He didn't try to steal it. He gave it right back to the master, but he was disobedient in the way that he used the resource that the master gave. Now, friends, when you stand before the Lord, you will be accountable, and you will not only be accountable for what you were given, you will be accountable for obeying the instruction of the king. So you don't just think, Lord, I am going to give you. Here's who you made me. I could do nothing with it. I hid it away, and I'm giving it back to you. No, my friends, the king has said, make disciples. So when you stand before the king and you say, king, here I am, he's going to say, what have you done with what I've given you? We went ahead of that last week and even made this statement. You will not be responsible, accountable for what the king's given you, Matthew chapter 25, he gives one servant ten talents. He gives one servant five talents. He gives one servant one talent. And he says in Matthew 25 in that parable, according to the will of the Father, he gave the account or or the talents to them. Here, he gives them all one mina, and now they're not responsible for the one mina. They're responsible for being obedient to do what God has given them, told them to do with the mina. So friends, this servant, although he didn't still squander, try to do anything with it, he hid it, but in hiding it and giving it back, he disobeyed the master. Friends, obedience and disobedience is key in your life. You will be accountable to do what the master has said for you to do. He goes on to say, I knew that you were a severe man. I knew that you reap where you don't sow. My friends, our God reaps where he doesn't sow because he gives the sowing to us. He has chosen in his sovereign will to give it to us. So he does reap where he doesn't sow because we have been instructed to sow. And what we sow does not belong to us. What we reap then does not belong to us. It belongs to the Father. He goes on to say, I feared you. I'll just make this statement and we'll move on. Fear is no excuse for faithlessness. Fear is no excuse for disobedience. My friends, the Lord has given us a clear instruction today. If you don't hear anything else I say, hear this. God has told us what our business is. And the one question, if you're a believer, that you will be asked and have to answer with your monies, with your time, your talent, and your treasure, is how have you made disciples? How have you made disciples? Because that's the commission. Whatever else you think matters in your life is not going to matter in eternity. It's going to be pale. You can say, well, Lord, I had this. I knew these folks. I went here. I had a good life, Lord. Your life is going to be defined by one thing if you're a believer. If you're not a believer, here it is. Do you know him or don't you? There's the, there's the difference. If you're a believer in this room, your life is going to answer one question when you stand before the Lord. I gave you an instruction How'd you do? How'd you do with your monies? My pastor once said when I was growing up, you can't outgive God. You can't outgive God. Why? Because it's all His. You're giving it right back to Him. You're saying, Lord, here's your stuff, use it. I want to use it for your glory. I want to spend it for your glory. We're reading a book this week about George Mueller, who started orphanages in England during the time right after the Great Awakening. Mueller would made a commitment. He would never, never solicit funds for the ministries he did. And he said, this is why. I'm not going to solicit funds because if it's God's pleasure to bless the ministry I'm going to attempt, 
then he gets all the glory. So he would post George Mueller starting a new orphanage, this location, and he would just pray. He would just pray. Time after time after time, God provided. He would have those orphans in his orphanage and he would be praying, Lord, we don't know where tonight's meal is going to come from, but you're faithful. Show yourself faithful. Take care of these children. Not come on the door. George, Lord, just laid it on our life. We brought your whole orphanage dinner tonight. Here it is. Friends, that's trust in God. And it's spending yourself for the cause of Christ. Some of you know the name Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers of the 19th century. Charles Spurgeon either headed up or founded 66 organizations in his lifetime to try to reach people for Christ. Friends, listen to me. You and I live in the most comfortable, lucrative days as far as wealth goes gathered in one spot. We live that. We are that. And one day we're going to be held accountable because the king has given us clear instructions. Listen to me. My, my point today is not to make you go out of here with a guilt trip and think, well, I just need to put another dollar in the plate. That's nothing. My point is, will you see everything you have, everything you are, as belonging to the king? I'm not trying to get you to quit your job, sell your house, move to a different place. I'm trying to get you to see your job as disciple-making. What are you doing in your job? What are you doing in your house to make disciples? What are you doing with the monies that you have to make disciples? You see, it's not about you giving to a church so the church could then turn around and minister It's about we are the church and how are we ministering in your job, in your neighborhood, in your uh, uh, relationships. How are we leveraging everything we have to make disciples? Now, there is something we do corporately here. We gather as a church. We do ministries corporately because we are covenanted together as a church. And so am I talking to you this morning about the church? Yes, Poplar Spring is one way that you can spend your monies to accomplish the Great Commission. There are other ways, and we better see more than just what we're giving to the church is to God. It's all His. We need more than monies, church. We need time, talent. We need our days spent for the Lord. So the question is, how can we disciple people? How can we make disciples? On January the 8th, just a few short days away, we as a church are going to gather and we're going to have a vision Sunday. My goal that Sunday is for us to think about how are we going to disciple the people of Poplar Spring? What do we want to do in growth for Poplar Spring this year? That's going to cost money. How do we reach Bun? Our neighbors, our co-workers, Broad Community is back on the table. We might be be able to be a part of Broad Community Center, reaching a community here. How are we reaching Bun? How are we spending our monies for that? How are we reaching the nations? You see, Matthew 28 says, go into all the world. So how are we reaching Turkey and Baltimore and Uganda and the places that we can go into? And we're going to talk about what can we do as a church corporately. But it's more than that. Don't think that this sermon is about, oh, I need to give to the church. That's part of it. It's only a small part of it. How are you leveraging your life and your monies for the cause of the king? Are you being obedient in your personal life? 
making a disciple. In your family life, making disciples. In your neighborhood, making disciples. In your job, making disciples. How are you leveraging what you have, including your monies, to make disciples? Because, friends, when the king returns, there will be one question on the table. How have you spent the resources I've given you? And we better be asking the question because the principle of accountability calls us to do so. Finally, this morning, this is previewing next week, but there will be a reward. So faithful servants not only expect the return of the king, faithful servants obey the instruction of the king, but finally this morning, faithful servants reap the reward of the king. See, in verse 15 at the end of the verse gives us the idea of this parable. When the king returned, he ordered the servants to whom he had given money to be called to him. Look at it, end of verse 15. That he might know what they had gained in doing business. I want you to see a couple of things here. First, the king will return. Second, the king will call you to account for every dollar, every minute, every gift, every resource that he's given you, and you will be accountable for it. And thirdly, the king, according to this text, expects that you have gained, that you have gained. And I want to ask, what is gain for us? It's that we've seen disciples made. It's that we've seen people come from being dead to being alive, from being lost to being saved to being found, from being blind to seeing, from being on the road to hell to serving our king on the road to heaven. You see, their obedience then is rewarded because they've leveraged what God has given them, what the king has given them for his purposes And so, look at it with me. The servants responded in verse 16. We already looked at, hey, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. So what does the king say in verse 17? Well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. Friends, when we are faithful with what God has given us, he will reward. He gives them authority. He gives them blessing. 10 cities. Notice the, the, the disparity between one mina, which is about three months' salary for an, an average laborer in their day, authority over ten cities. The Lord's reward will be worth it. My question this morning is, why would we grasp at holding on to the little bit we have in comparison with the abundance that the king has. Spend it for him. Risk it all for him. I don't think you'll find disappointment in that. As a matter of fact, I think you'll find joy and contentment and satisfaction in using your resources to make disciples. On the other hand, I think you'll find sorrow and emptiness and discontentment in using your resources for your own selfish purposes. There's reward for faithfulness here, but very quickly, there's not only reward for faithfulness, there's reward and consequences for disobedience. Notice there are two reports of disobedience. The third servant who only kept the mina hidden is called a wicked servant. Verse 22, he says, I'm going to condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. Because you knew that it all belonged to me. In other words, that's verse 22 paraphrased really roughly. He says, you should have at least put the money in the bank. Collected interest. There's punishment for disobedience. So he says in verse 26, take away what was given to the one 
and give it to the one who has 10. The people say, Lord, he has 10 minas and you're going to give this one to him? And the master says, absolutely. Verse 26, look at it. Here's a principle you don't need to walk away from here without. I tell you, everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, now stop there and make comment here. Listen, the one who has not, he has had one mina, one mina he had and he gave it back to the Lord. And the Lord says he has not. Look, if you only have what the Lord gave you and you're not using it for him to gain in his kingdom, then the Lord says you have not. Put that in the terms of discipleship. If you came and prayed a prayer and you said you received Christ and you got baptized, but you're not making disciples, here's what the Lord says, you have not. You didn't get it. You haven't become a follower of Christ yet. Because a follower of Christ is an obedient follower of Christ. Friends, that's strong language. Take it away from him and give it to the one who has ten. Why? Because the one who has, more will be given. The one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Wow, those are strong words for us, aren't they? When we know our business is discipleship. Not only is there this unfaithful servant, there are enemies of the king. I think this is probably the other seven servants that had a mina and went on. He says in verse 27, as for those enemies of mine, startling words. Bring them here and slaughter them before me. How could our King Jesus, who loves us so much, who, John 3, 16, loved the world, that he gave his life. How can our King Jesus say there will be slaughter of the enemies of God? Listen, because he's the king forever. And you, one day, will find yourself and either as an enemy of the king or a member of his kingdom. The difference is Jesus Christ, the king. And those of us who know him will find ourselves in this situation. What have you done to make disciples? This is the king's business. It's our king's business to make disciples. How are we doing it?